Okay, let's open with prayer, as we always should. Lord, we thank you for this day that you have given us, this day there where there are struggles and triumphs. We pray that you will be seen in all of them, that you will have your hand on those who are in need, that you will give gratitude to those who have been blessed. Most of all, let us see you in all things and recognize that you are the author of all things. Pray for this study now that we will see more clearly Christ in every page and word of the Old Testament, see that, that it was all building to your greatest revelation, Jesus Christ. I pray that this will be a time of edification and knowledge and that your Holy Spirit will be present here, edifying us, building us up, opening our eyes, and helping us to see you better. In your name we pray. Amen. <sighs> okay. Well, it has been kind of a crazy day for me. Uh, I woke up at 5 o'clock this morning and found out that my nephew, who has finished all his courses at the Air Force Academy, but is unvaccinated, is being kicked out two weeks before his graduation. So we have been mobilizing the forces to remedy that. So uh, it's, it's a dishonorable thing that is happening. So he's one of four seniors who are being uh, dismissed and uh, under the threat that they will have to repay all of what it costs the government to educate them, which is about $400,000. So, anyway, but in the midst of that, I was able to clear that from my mind and uh, prepare for tonight, which Hoyt said I could either continue where he left off in Titus, or I could do whatever I wanted. <laughs> so, I'm, I decided to, to take door number two, and uh, I wanted to kind of continue some threads that I had picked up in the last couple Sunday school classes that I did where we were talking about communion and uh, or the Lord's Supper and baptism and, and how those are are deeply embedded in the Old Testament and <clears throat> as I was preparing for those classes uh, I just was continually struck by the repetitive nature of uh, the themes and the events in the Old Testament and how those are cyclically cropping up throughout the Old Testament and ultimately in, 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 in every way pointing towards Christ. And we read so many things in the Old Testament and, and when we that have value at one level, but we don't see necessarily see how they are pointing us towards Christ. And so tonight I just wanted to take some time and, and re-examine uh, some narratives that we're pretty familiar with, uh, but really see how there are layers that we don't often or readily see, and to see how Christ really is embedded in all this stuff. Um, and, and so the, the central motif then that all of this sort of revolves around is, is the Exodus. And 
other than you know creation the, the exodus saga the all of the events the passover the red sea the encounters at sinai and ultimately the entry into the land as we see in joshua which is really a conclusion of that whole narrative um <coughs> excuse me it uh it is all, all of that is is the essential event that everything else in the Old Testament is flowing out of, and in many cases, uh, recapitulating or recreating or, or, or hearkening back to. So we will see this time and time again. But we will also. I want to also point out how this is the things in Genesis are really pointing us forward towards the Exodus. And, and as I talked about, and, and maybe we can talk about it again a bit tonight, how the exodus itself is really pointing us towards Christ and his death and resurrection. So, with that, let us begin. Um, oh, and yes, I have to say it because I always have to say it, is one of the great axioms of reading the Bible, especially the Old Testament, and, and this was taught to me by one of my professors, he, he said, what God has done in the past is both a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. So what we see in the past prior to Christ in the Old Testament is a model and a promise for what he's going to do through his son. And ultimately, that is all a model and a promise for what will ultimately be done. Whoa, something just turned on in here. What will ultimately be done uh, when the Lord returns. So it is all a model and a promise for what he is going to do. So with that, then, let's begin to look at uh, the Exodus narrative and how it's, it's actually being... It is well foreshadowed throughout Genesis. It's, it's actually pretty shocking how foreshadowed it is throughout Genesis. Um, and we really see that in particular <coughs> with uh, the lives of Abraham and Jacob. And both of them, and there's many, many uh, points of contact where they are being pointed to as new Adams. So they, and, and ultimately, what we are going to see is that Israel at the Exodus is also a new Adam. Collectively, the nation of Israel is a new Adam. And, and the nation is called my son by God, just as, as Adam is his son. And ultimately... All of them are pointing towards the new Adam, which is who? Jesus Christ. And he truly is the son of God. So uh, how do we, we see that? Well, just as an example, uh, God blesses Adam. And he also blesses Noah, who is also seen as a new Adam. Uh, not the, the ultimate new Adam that Christ is, but he is a, a foreshadowing of Christ. But how does God bless Adam and Noah? What does he tell them to do? It says, be what? Be 
Yeah, be fruitful and multiply. So just the fact that you see both Adam and Noah, who are both in some way first men, right? I mean, Adam is the first man, and he's being told to be fruitful and multiply. And then after everyone is judged and inundated in the flood, and Noah then is a new Adam, right? And he's told to what? Be fruitful and multiply. It's the exact same words. And when you see the exact same words happening in repetition, you pay attention to that. Just as a rule of Bible study, when you see words appearing in the same way and in the same pattern and being told to do the same thing, when you read your Bible, if you recognize that, you should perk up. And we're going to see more of that as we go through tonight. So, and interest, so, Ad, so Abraham is, is also a new Adam. And I think it's interesting that the blessing that God promises to Abraham is <clears throat> point for point going to repudiate the curses that were laid down on Adam in the garden at the fall. So what are the three things that Abraham has promised? Can anyone tell me? I can't hear you all talking at once, so I'm sorry. <laughs> so he, what? Okay, he, uh, a, a people or a, a nation, a seed, and blessing that the whole world will be blessed by blessing Abraham's progeny. So there's people, blessing, and land. He promises that, that he will have that land. And on my little chart there, you will notice that all three of those things are going to counter the curses that are laid down in Genesis. So we don't often think of that, but it's true. When you read about Abraham, you're already seeing the remedy of those curses. So where God says that there will be enmity between the serpent seed and the women's woman's seed, that's in Genesis 3.15, what's called the proto-evangelion, the first good news. So where, where there's going to be that enmity between the serpent seed and the woman's seed, the serpent seed is not demons, but all who follow in the serpent's footsteps. So Cain is, in the, is one of the serpent's seed. And there's a whole uh, biblical theology that comes from that. And if you come to my Sunday school class, we will talk about that. Um, so, but where there's enmity between the serpent seed or those who follow the serpent and those who follow the woman seed, who's the woman seed? Jesus. Abraham says that God will curse those who dishonor and bless, curse those who dishonor Abraham and bless those who honor Abraham. So the blessing will come through the, from Abraham's line. So the whole world will be blessed if they bless Abraham's seed. And who is Abraham's seed? Ultimately, Jesus Christ. So the whole blessing from God 
is available to the whole world through Abraham's seed. So the remedy to the, 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 the division between the serpent seed and the woman seed is, is through Abraham's seed, ultimately. And then God promises reproductive pain and he promises strife between men and women. And how does, but we see God remedying that by overcoming Sarah's barrenness. And what comes from Sarah by overcoming her being barren? Isaac, who is a foreshadowing of Christ himself. And ultimately through Isaac will come Jacob. And ultimately from Jacob will come Judah. And who comes from Judah ultimately? Whose hand the scepter shall not pass from? Jesus Christ. See how this works? So, and then God puts a curse on the ground. And God promises Israel a land of what? Milk and honey. Does that sound like the opposite of a, of a cursed ground where toil and labor will be hard? Yes. It's, it's not just a land of milk and honey. It's a land flowing with it, of abundance. So where, they are, where Adam was cursed with hard toil in the ground, now Abraham and his progeny are being promised abundance in the land. So that's just to, to give you an idea of how those fit together, how Abraham is uh, a new Adam. Incidentally, um, I don't know how far into the weeds we want to go, but when Eve was made, in what state was Adam? Right. A, a, a light slumber? A deep slumber. In what state was Abraham when God made these promises and made this covenant with him. A deep slumber. And the Hebrew word for that, tordamah, only occurs those two times in the Old Testament. And so when God is creating Eve, through whom the seed of the woman will come, by which all will be saved, so too, and, and he puts Adam into this deep slumber. In Hebrew, it literally means trance. So too, when God is making these promises of this fulfillment, Abraham is also in a similar deep slumber. So there's a lot of parallels between Adam and Abraham. But that's not really what I want to talk about. What I really want to talk about are the parallels between Adam and Adam. Abraham in the Exodus. But before we get into that, are there any questions? This is, this is not Sunday school. You guys can, I can move down into the front and sit closer to you guys if you want. Um, I'm happy to, to field questions. I'm happy to field questions in Sunday school too. So, but I tend to be a talker and I just start rolling and I don't leave a lot of time for, uh, for questions sometimes, I guess. Okay, so... What is one really, really obvious uh, parallel between Abraham and the Exodus? 
earth. Yep. So God called, did, did he just leave on a whim or did he, God called him, right? Okay, and then God called his people out of Egypt. So just the basic trajectory of Abraham's life is in and of itself a template for the Exodus. But there's many, many, many more parallels, and I'm not going to go into all of them tonight. I just want to give you guys a taste so that when you go back and if you read Genesis again, your, your antennae can go up and say, oh, I see some parallels. That was a really weird uh, antennae there. So, so let's look at some of the parallels. And one of the most uh, interesting is Abraham's uh, sojourn in, of all places, Egypt. Where is the Exodus centrally located in? In Egypt. So you have this really interesting parallel. And it's also interesting, too. I mean, why, why did Moses... Okay, who, who wrote Genesis? Moses. Why would Moses include this? What's the purpose of including this account of Abraham in Egypt? Well, it's, it's, he is intentionally using events, and God is guiding him through the Holy Spirit inspiring him to set the template for what is to come, for the greatest work of salvation God is going to uh, accomplish in the Old Testament. Excuse me. Which again is pointing to who? To Christ. Okay. So let's look at some of these uh, parallels. So we look at Genesis 12.10 and Abraham goes down to Egypt on account of famine. Why does Jacob move his family down to Egypt? Because of famine. So right off the bat, we see some parallels, okay? And then Sarah is seized by the Pharaoh. Now keep in mind, Sarah's barrenness, she is, she is the, and I don't mean this uh, in a negative way, but Sarah is the vessel of God's blessing. It's through Sarah, is it through Hagar? No, it's through Sarah that God is going to bless his people. So the nation of Israel, the seed, is... Uh, represented by Sarah in this instance. So Sarah is seized by Pharaoh. And in Exodus, what, in what condition is, is Israel? Enslaved by Pharaoh. Okay. Gesundheit. And then w upon arriving, Pharaoh enriches Abraham. And when Israel is going to leave Egypt, do they leave empty-handed? No, they take the treasure of Egypt with them. That they took it? Did the Pharaoh willingly give it to Abraham? So you already see the template being established. Well, think, I mean, 
after the 10th plague, I mean, after all the plagues, cumulatively, it's like, get out of here. What do I have to do to get you gone? So, <clears throat> and speaking of plagues, Yahweh frees Sarah by afflicting the Pharaoh. And he also liberates Israel by mean of plagues. He afflicts Egypt with many plagues. So in Genesis 14 then, and Genesis 13 is setting up then the, uh, the uh, my brain stopped working, the, the appearance of Lot into the story. And he's captured and, and Abraham has to go and, and fight a bunch of kings and rescue him. And we have an account of that just after the Exodus in Numbers 21 where the Hebrews defeat Sihon and Og. So that's coming from a different book, but it's chronologically it fits within the narrative. So and then who does Abraham meet after he defeats those kings? Melchizedek. Is Melchizedek a Hebrew? No. Does he know Yahweh? Yes. Okay. Who then does Moses and the, the Hebrews meet as they leave Egypt when they arrive near Sinai? They meet Jethro. And Jethro is who? He, he's the priest of Midian. He's also Moses' father-in-law. But is he a Hebrew? No. But he acclaims the might and glory of Yahweh, just as Melchizedek does. So you have a non-Jew priest recognizing the sovereignty of Yahweh in both cases. Isn't that interesting? But it continues. In both cases, God says, I am Yahweh who brought you out of Egypt or Ur in, in both cases. But again, when you see that language being used twice, you know something is afoot. And then in Genesis 15 and 12 through 17, there is a theophany. Who knows what a theophany is? What? In an appearance of God. And in, the, in, in Genesis 15, it's dark. It says the sun has gone down. And when Abraham is being put into a slumber, it says while the sun was setting. And then now it says the sun after the sun had set. So it's dark. Then God appears as a smoking pot of fire. And he passes through the cut animals in order to cut the covenant with Abraham. At the same time in Exodus now, you have another theophany where God descends on Sinai, but you once again, you have the darkness, you have the cloud, the fire, and the smoke in both theophanies. And then in both cases, there is prophecy uh, that, that is looking forward to the next great event. So in Genesis, it's, it's Exodus out of Egypt and in Exodus 15, it's, it's verse 16. You can scratch off the 5 there. That's a mistake. I, I didn't mean to include verse 5 in there. So it should be f Exodus 15, 16. There is a prophecy of an, the Exodus-like conquest that is coming in Canaan, which we will see in Joshua, which 
is a reenactment or really a recapitulation of the Exodus, which we'll get to in a little bit. So <coughs> that's just a taste of how all of the elements of the Exodus are present in Abraham's life, and we see that in other places as well. But that's a pretty point-for-point parallel with the Exodus, and that's, that's intentional. God is giving us the template for what's going to happen. So, and we see that again in Abraham's grandson with Jacob. And just the way that Jacob receives Isaac's blessing, uh, it is, uh, there's a lot of parallels to Adam and Eve in that, in, in how uh, the woman is, is leading in the deception, how there is food involved, the fruit of the tree, and the meal made for Isaac, how afterwards, uh, I mean, Rebecca even says, if this goes awry, the curse be upon me, just as Adam and Eve were cursed. And she clothes Jacob just as God clothes Adam and Eve. So there's a lot of interesting parallels in the, the fall with Jacob stealing Esau's birthright and blessing. Um, but then the story of Jacob and Laban are also is, is another foreshadow of the Exodus to come. So let's look at those. I forgot to put the, the verses in there, so I, I hope you will forgive me. Um, but in both cases, in Genesis, Laban welcomes Jacob to his family. Just as in Exodus, Pharaoh welcomes Jacob and his family. So then Laban holds Jacob in servitude. How does he do that? Yeah, he, Jacob wants to marry Rachel, and so he promises to work for Laban, and, and Laban gives him Leah instead. But, uh, and so then he holds him again, and he says, if you really want her, you're going to keep working for me for a few more years. And so he holds Jacob in servitude, just as Pharaoh holds Israel in servitude, slavery. And while Jacob is there, does he have a family? Yeah, that's when all his sons are born, or most of his sons at least, are born while he's working for Laban. So he is fruitful and multiplies. And when Israel is in Egypt for 430 years, are they fruitful and multiply? Yeah, it, it, the Bible says they were exceedingly, because they became a, not just a family but a nation while they were in Egypt. So while in bondage, they are fruitful and multiply. God sees Jacob's mistreatment by Laban, and God says he's going to send him back to his own land. And then God sees Israel's affliction by Pharaoh. I mean, it says, I see, in both cases, I see, both times God says, I see. And God gives 
his people a productive land, which is, was whose land? It was Jacob's land. He was there sen- he's promised them, he's sending them back to the land that he's already sent Jacob back to. So, it's, I mean, it's the same place. Jacob asks Laban for his release. And Moses and Aaron ask for Israel's release. They say what? God says what? Let, let my people go. And does Laban refuse? Yes. Does Pharaoh refuse? Yes. So upon leaving, Jacob plunders Laban's flocks. I mean, you know, he, he says, give me all the speckled ones. Well, suddenly God says, here's a bunch of speckled ones. You know, so Jacob's flock suddenly multiplies. Laban's flock doesn't grow. And as we've already talked about, Israel plunders Egypt as they depart. Does Laban pursue Jacob? Yes. Does Pharaoh pursue Israel? Yes. And God intervenes and tells Laban to stop following Jacob and to lay off. Does God intervene for Israel when Pharaoh pursues? Yes, he does. And he collapses the Red Sea on Pharaoh's army. So, once again, you see how Jacob's life, and again, there are many other places where this is the case, but Jacob's life is foreshadowing what is to come with the Exodus. And the Exodus itself is the great foreshadowing of what is to come with Christ. So when we read in the New Testament how when Christ, you know, walked after he rose and walked along with, you know, the road and he revealed how he was preached in the whole of the scriptures or how Philip goes through the scriptures with the Ethiopian eunuch and shows how Christ was preached through all of that. This is the kind of thing they're probably looking at. I mean, how through the whole Old Testament, in places where we don't think to look, Christ and, and what he accomplished is already embedded in all of this. So it's really, really amazing. I mean, I never think to look in the story. I mean, Honestly, my eyes glaze over when I get to Genesis and Abraham goes to Egypt. I'm like, okay, they went to Egypt and they had an encounter with Pharaoh and then they went back. I mean, what's the point? Well, this is the point. It's pointing us to to Jesus in a really subtle but remarkable way. We just have to have the eyes to see it. And, you know, this happens again and again and again and again in the Old Testament. Uh, you know, as soon as the exodus happens, I mean, not as soon, 40 years later, but in terms of reading along chronologically in the Bible, pretty much as soon as, the entire exodus is reenacted in a way, or uh, just I like the word recapitulated once again as the Hebrews enter into the promised land. So, I mentioned in my class how Rahab is a reenactment, that's not quite the right word, but a, a repetition of events of the Passover. 
So, I mean, and we don't think of Passover when we look at Rahab, but it's all there. It's all there. You know, the, the spies, it, it's covenantal in language, the, the interaction between the spies and Rahab. You know, she says, you know, I will abide by the terms of this covenant. Uh, you know, they tell her to gather all her family into the house while the city is being destroyed, just as Moses was told for each person to gather into the house, you know, into the houses with the blood, the, the lamb's blood on the, the doors, over the doors, you know, and they would be spared from destruction. And so too would Rahab's family be spared from destruction. And how were the doors marked but with the blood of the lamb? How was Rahab's house marked? By the red cord or rope or shawl hanging from the window. But that is, that is the repetition of the blood, the red blood over the doors. And by what, but we say, oh, it's a window that she hung it from. But which way did the spies leave? They went out the window, just as the blood is over the way that Moses and his family went in and out of their house. So the, the parallels are there. And then what happens right after the account of Rahab and the spies. But then the people cross over the Jordan. And in the same way, the, the Red Sea is, is reenacted. It's not just that the Jordan stops flowing, but it's withheld many miles up so there's dry land for the people to walk on, just as it was with the Red Sea. And then as soon as they cross over, what's the very first thing that they do when they are now in the promised land? Well, they do that. You're right. And then they hold Passover. So, yeah, they built an altar first. And, you know, it's interesting in terms of the building of the altar, but what does it say? I mean, this is a really good uh, exegetical reminder for us about what's going on. But look at Joshua 4. And it's in, in verse 21, it says, And he said to the people of Israel, When your children ask their fathers in times to come, what do these stones mean? Then you shall let your children know, Israel passed over this Jordan on dry ground, for the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea, which he dried up for us until we passed over, so that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty and that you may fear the Lord your God forever. So God is explicitly linking the crossing of the Jordan with the crossing of the Red Sea and the act of salvation that he did in both. And in both cases, that act of submersion or passage through the water is mirrored in baptism, where we are submerged or passed through the water and we emerge on the other side with muddy feet or with clean feet? With clean feet. So all of this is pointing towards Christ. And this is what we're celebrating with baptism. Does that make sense? Okay. It's 7 o'clock. Do you guys mind if I keep going? Or do you want to do questions right now? Keep going? Okay. Okay.
Um, so let's let's move to the New Testament then. And this this is I, I just want to give a small example of how this is reflected in the Old Testament. But there, you know, suffice to say, there's much, 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 much more of that. Paul does it, the Gospels do it. It's, but those are the two places where you're really going to see the Exodus motif present in the New Testament with regards to Christ. 1 Corinthians in particular is one that is very prevalent, uh, is deeply saturated, I should say, with, uh, with uh, Exodus motif. But I want to look at Matthew, and really I don't even want to look at all of Matthew, although we could, but I just, for a few minutes, want to look at the beginning of Matthew. So, and how does Matthew begin? With a genealogy. And who are the last two names before Christ? What? No? It says, yeah, it says, and Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. So, Joseph, the father of Jesus, is his father, so Jesus' grandfather, is Jacob. Is it accidental that in Genesis, Jacob is the father of Joseph, and in Matthew, Jacob is the father of Joseph? And by what means did Joseph in Genesis achieve favor with Pharaoh? What did God give him? Yeah, he, he, he received dreams and interpreted dreams. And by what means was Joseph made aware that Mary was going to give birth to Christ by dreams. That's not a coincidence. That's, once again, what God has done in the past as a model and a promise for what he will do in the future. We just need to be alert to see these things that are right in front of us. And we don't see them, but they're there. Not necessarily, but maybe. So it's a little different now because Christ is not being born, but he is already a man sitting at the right hand of the Father. It's not the exact same scenario per se. I think what we see in the Gospels and what we see in Revelation are two parts of the same event with the separation of the church in between. So it, it's all looking forward to that. I mean, the, whole, the Old Testament uh, is loaded with things that are present in Revelation, especially Revelation 20 and 21. I mean, you can go to I think it's really interesting. You can go to Isaiah, and God is described walking around with white clothes, stained red from stomping on 
by the blood of the heathen na nations as if he were stomping on a wine press. And when Christ finally uh, returns in Revelation, he's wearing a white cloak dipped in blood. It's the same imagery. So I'm saying the second coming isn't a recapitulation of his birth. It's all part of the same narrative. And other parts of the Old Testament are pointing forward to Revelation. That's not what we're talking about tonight. But we could. And there's a lot of that in the Old Testament. We just don't necessarily see that either. There's a lot of parallels between Genesis and Revelation. The beginning and the end. The Alpha and the Omega. So it's, it's a fascinating study. Um, the star over... No, so all of this that I'm talking about is just Old Testament... Uh, an exodus uh, parallels between the birth of Christ as recounted in Matthew and, and in the Old Testament. So Numbers 24.17 has the promise of the star. Um, due to the dreams, Joseph takes Christ to where? Back to Egypt. So then in Hosea, we see, you know, out of Egypt, I called my son. And Matthew quotes that in, uh, in, in the beginning of his gospel. He quotes Hosea. Also, the dreams are the that I was mentioned earlier. I mean, I put it in the notes. The dreams, uh, well, I'll get to that. Um, and then what does Herod do to prevent the king of the Jews from being born? Yeah, and what happens in Exodus when Moses is born? It's the cho the yeah. I mean, have you ever wondered why? I mean, I always saw that and thought, well, that's interesting. That happened twice. It's like, but my, it's like I didn't see it, but my brain did. If that makes any sense, it's like you can. The pattern was there, and there's a recognition of it, but we don't necessarily see the importance of the pattern. But here we see it. And then uh, in response to this, to the slaying of the innocents, uh, Matthew quotes Jeremiah 31.15, which is the lament over the young men being killed as the people uh, are being led away into exile in Babylon. <coughs> Incidentally, that exile is another repetition of the exodus motif but then what comes immediately after that account beginning in jeremiah 31 15 but we get to jeremiah 31 31 which is what it's one of the most important passages in the old testament and that's the new covenant and that's when christ breaks the bread and pours the wine and at the Last Supper, he says, this is the, new, the blood of the new covenant. He's talking about Jeremiah 31, 31. So, that, I mean, it's all tied in together. The, the slaying of the innocents, the wailing, the new covenant, all of it. So, and, and we could go on and on and on about the parallels between the Exodus and, and Christ as presented in Matthew, 
John also is very heavily uh, saturated with parallels between Exodus and and Christ, and and then again Paul does it as well. So I will end there because that is the end of my notes, and I don't want to overload you guys because I, I think I just threw a lot at you really fast. But I hope that that gives you some sense of what is going on in the Old Testament. When we read it, these are not just stories. These, ha- <coughs> excuse me, these happened, but they also happened under God's guidance, and He is pointing us towards something. So the whole Old Testament is pointing us towards Christ. All of these things, all of these events, all of these people, all of these lives are giving us a foreshadow of what is to come with Jesus Christ. And when we read the Old Testament, we really should have your antennae up, have your feelers out, be sensitive to what's going on. And if something seems like, I've heard this before, I've seen this before, well, pay attention to that because you you have seen it before and you have heard it before. And make those connections because that, you know, the Old Testament is scripture for a reason. It is, it is God-breathed and given to us in God's word, which will last forever, for a reason. Because it's pointing us to Jesus Christ. And the more we are able to see that, and the layers with which it does that, because it's not just at the layer that I'm talking about, it's multiple layers. And there's not just layers, but there is a thread that is linearly running through this from Adam to Noah to Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, David, Hezekiah, Joseph the second, and Jesus Christ. There is a line running through all of that. So there's layers and there is a linear trajectory, and then it spreads out endlessly. And it, it is a vast well of truth, and all of it is pointing us to, to Christ. So the more we see him in that and let that feed us, the better off we are. So I will end there. Any questions about anything? I'll take, like Hoyt usually takes questions on anything. I'll be brave and take questions on anything. So theoretically, we still have 15 or so minutes before the kids come in. So nothing? Did I just burn everybody out? I'm sorry. I have Sure. Well, it's never too late.
I've seen her around. I think I know who you're talking about, and I've seen her around a few times. And, you know, it, it she neglects it to her poverty. You know, I mean, it's it's she is the poorer for making that decision. So, I mean, the Old Testament is absolutely important. I'm not denying that. But the Old Testament is equally important. And the more we see Christ in it and God's wisdom in it and his grace and his mercy and all of these things, the, you know, the better off we will be. I mean, I, I love, just as an example, Second Samuel 9. Does anyone know what that story is? That's the story of Mephibosheth. Does anyone know who he is? So, yeah, he's Saul's son. But that whole, what? Or Saul's, Jonathan's son. Yeah, Saul's grandson. But that whole chapter of 2 Samuel is, that is a beautiful depiction of God's grace for us that he has for us in Jesus Christ. Where David is the king, and by all rights, he should kill Mephibosheth. He should judge him and kill him because he is the son of, uh, of, uh, of the line of the deposed king. He is a threat to the security of David because people could rally around him and say, no, we want Saul's family, not David. But rather than disposing of Mephibosheth, and is Mephibosheth whole? No, he's a cripple. He's been a cripple since he was a baby. I mean, it says that. He was dropped by his nurse, and his feet were crippled. So he's, he is not whole, and yet what does David do for him but brings him into his house and lets him sit and feast at the king's table for the rest of his life? He has grace on Mephibosheth. And what is Mephibosheth's response? It's the same response we should have before God, but he says, what is a dead dog such as I to the king? I mean, that's that should be all of our responses. So right there, I mean, in this random story, we see the grace of, of God as expressed through Jesus Christ being expressed point for point theologically point for point in the story of Mephibosheth. It's a beautiful story. So, and when we read through the whole the Old Testament again and again and again and again, these are the kinds of things we just need to have the eyes to see it. So, I'll get off my pedestal, my 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 pulpit there or whatever it is. Any other questions? Okay, then I, my pleasure. Let me close in prayer really quick before we go. <clears throat> Lord, we thank you again for this opportunity to study your word. I pray that we will take from this a greater appreciation for who you are, what you have given us in your word and in your son, the Logos, that we may know you better through the study of that which lasts forever, your word. So I pray a, a special blessing on each person who is here, that they will be edified by this, that your spirit will be active and, and encourage them in, in this study. 
We ask all these things in the name of your Son and by the power of your Spirit. Amen.